Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest. I think you're really going to enjoy. So I'm sure all of you have heard the Democratic Party, the media, people like Joe Biden going on and on about white supremacy, how it's taking over the country, how it's the worst thing that could ever happen, how it's the greatest threat to our domestic lives. It's pretty obvious that this is untrue, but they keep repeating it over and over again. And we're going to be getting into why they do that today. What's the motivation behind this? Why is there this focus on this kind of language and rhetoric? And joining me to discuss that topic today is Charles Haywood of The Worthy House. Charles, thanks for joining me. Pleased to be back. Absolutely. So obviously, we've all seen this rhetoric. It's everywhere. It's constant. And it seems ridiculous. A lot of people like to laugh at it. A lot of people like to joke. They try to argue back at it with a bunch of stats and stuff. And yeah, fair enough. Like, obviously, the stats are there to, to prove what bunk this is. But you had a very good tweet here over the weekend that kind of went viral on this. And I think it provided some pretty good insight. So could you just explain to us why are they obsessed with this particular language? Well, the, my tweet said, in essence, compared the use of this language to other forms of leftist language, most notably in the nature of a tweet, it has to be boiled down. You can expand it later on. But to communist, early communist, early 20th century communist language, uh, identifying the kulaks and the bourgeoisie, which of course were the targets of organized expropriation and extermination by the Bolsheviks, as well as by other communist regimes, as well as later communist regimes like, like Pol Pot, and so on. And so what I did was I compared those terms to white nationalism and white supremacy as terms of flexible meaning, the mean actual meaning of which is irrelevant, but the goal of which is, in, is to justify and implement the left program of expropriation followed by extermination of political enemies. I mean, we won't spend any time on it. White supremacy is obviously not a thing. White nationalism is not a thing any more than you know, Martian supremacy or Martian nationalism is a thing in America. Those things are roughly equivalent in the terms of, in terms of the number of adherents and certainly equivalent in the, in the amount of political relevancy. And, but you're right. And I think what I was trying to get out of my tweet is that getting bogged down in any discussion whatsoever of the so-called reality or unreality of white supremacy and white nationalism is a total waste of time. We need to recognize these are merely tools used by our political enemies towards their political enemies, namely us, in order to justify stealing from us and then killing us, just like the Bolsheviks in 1919 and the 1920s and 1930s. And if you fail to realize this, you will do yourself no favors. Yeah, I think that's a really essential element because people so often, especially on the right, they just take the argument at its face value. They hear something and they say, well, that's ridiculous. That should be easy to refute, right? In the same way that a man cannot become a woman. Obviously, white supremacy <laughs> or white nationalism is not the number one thing that uh, you know is threatening our country. That is, This is very obvious to anyone with just a set of eyeballs. In a, in a functioning brain. And so they, they think, well, I'll just, I'll just tell people and then they will understand. But like you're saying, there's a very clear reason why this is being used. When you sit there and you try to argue every bit of this, when you think, well, I'll just bring some statistics, I'll just bring some facts and logic, you're missing the very point of the rhetoric. And that's why we see people like Joe Biden, but most importantly, his all of these functionaries, we see the heads of FBI, CIA, you know, the, the uh, Justice Department, you know, the, uh, the Attorney General, 
all of these people will repeat this over and over again ad nauseum even members of the trump administration some of these officials under donald trump said the same thing and it's very interesting that no matter who the uh, the leader is, this rhetoric continu continues to echo throughout our administrative state, which means it probably has more than just some statistical re refutation that needs to happen here. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think refutation is entirely the wrong approach. Uh, I think that preparedness is is the right approach. There's really no no changing the fact that this is the inevitable end and always is historically the inevitable end of the left march to power or attempted march to power. There is only one end point, which is existential conflict in order to either eliminate uh, and destroy left power, unfortunately, historically, only until the next iteration. Hopefully it can be some done someday in a way that's permanent, uh, or to accept that these people are going to steal everything you have. And if you're lucky, only put you in a camp, but more likely kill you. And so if you don't recognize that, then it, it, it's a mistake. The, the manifestations obviously vary because the communists focused on class, whereas here we see a focus on the nomenclature of race. And I'm sure you could write an academic paper on why the current incarnation of the left, the Western left, and here we're primarily talking about the American left, though weirdly it's also imported into the, the broader Western or Anglophone left is race. Obviously, America has a, a long history of racial conflict, and it, it, perhaps it's a, it, that's why they choose race rather than class. The communists focus on class. These people focus on race. And then you get start to get into the weeds about, well, you know, which racists are the racists that are being attacked? Is race really an element or is it everybody who's a political enemy? Is it that white people and honorary white people like Asians are the political enemy? I mean, how much race is actually involved? Those are interesting discussions to have. But the discussion you shouldn't have is, I agree, digging out statistics to prove that there are five white, actual white supremacists in the United States and they have no political relevance. I don't think that is a useful thing to do at all. Yeah, it's pretty obvious that people like Clarence Thomas, uh, you know, being being immediately dubbed honorary white people right, exactly. means, means there's probably something a little beyond just purely race. But I do think that that does obviously play an element for these people. They wouldn't march behind this flag if it didn't have some kind of rhetorical weight for them. But I think you're right that continually trying to refute this is is not the way to go. Now, obviously, you know, some some people here are going to be familiar with the kulaks but could we just give a little bit of context for people who might not be familiar with the history or kind of the the terminology who are the kulaks and why were they such an important target for the soviets so uh, once upon a time in <clears throat> when the soviet bolsheviks took power in 1917 the uh the focus of course of communism throughout the 19th century was class that is the oppression of one set of classes by another set of classes and this this filtered through the soviet bolshevik lens came out uh, in part in the idea that the people who are responsible for blocking the ascension of communism and its immediate deliverance of utopia were kulaks, which is a generic term meaning, in essence, before the Soviets appropriated it, wealthy farmer. Wealthy here meaning somewhat wealthier than his neighbors. The Russians have a long and not very respectable history of uh, class envy. And so there's a long history and there's all various folk tales about Russian peasants being envious of their slightly richer neighbors. So the term kulak does not mean someone with a giant estate. It means someone who has a few more animals than his neighbors. So it could be people who have a, uh, a more substantial difference in, in assets or wealth 
than their neighbors. And so especially when the Soviets were looking for food and trying to accumulate food from the countryside, they focused on whipping up propaganda campaigns of hatred against the kulaks, which a definition they expanded to be basically not just wealthier farmers, but everybody they suspected of perhaps being opposed to the Soviet state, a very broad group of people, including people like landless laborers who for some reason were identified, for example, with an ethnic group that uh, that might be considered to be anti-Soviet. All these people were considered kulaks and were expropriated and liquidated, killed by the millions. Uh, there's you know, more, more to it, but basically it was a term originally meaning rich farmer repurposed, just like white supremacy or white nationalism, which is something that has a real meaning, but expanded simply to mean political enemy. Right. And I think the the malleability of that term is important, but I think it's also important to understand some of the kind of mechanics of power that are happening here. So I think the reason that kulaks are always a problem for any centralizing regime is the high and low versus middle distinction, right? Uh, from, from Bertrand de Juvenal. If you want to centralize power, you need to get rid of autonomy. You can't have these people in the middle who have created social networks, who have created political networks, who have created uh, you know, uh, economic networks, all these things that allow them to exist outside the power of the state. The, the continued uh, infrastructure of the previous regime cannot be allowed to move into the new one if the, if the current regime is going to maximize its control. And so you need to find a way, an excuse to collapse that middle class, that class that has accumulated enough property, enough social networking, enough social capital, enough independence to not always need and listen to the demands of the centralized state. And so obviously not all kulaks could do that, but some of the kulaks did represent this. The class envy is a huge part of it, but also the ability of them to provide for themselves, to show some level of independence and self-reliance. That's a huge problem for a state that is kind of billing itself on its uh, ability to top-down manage the entire economy, the entire infrastructure. And here in America, we have a similar thing, kind of the, the this re these remnants of bourgeoisie capitalism, particularly those that might have been connected to any kind of remnants of uh, of a, a European settlers in the United States, they need to be removed because they uh, continue to perpetuate that system that allowed for independence, that allowed for regionality, that allowed for the, the kind of a federal government to exist. And if we can just get rid of those, if we can just remove those infrastructures, then the total state can kind of solidify their control uh, and their need to exercise that top-down central planning of everything. You know, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think you, you touched on the other term, which is highly relevant, which is bourgeoisie, which is kind of the urban equivalent of the kulaks, the same group of people who have independent assets, independent thought, independent social networks. And that's an even more flexible term uh, than than kulak, which is also something that's more specifically Russian. Bourgeoisie is a you know, more common communist target for expropriation and extermination and even more, more flexible I think what goes along with that is also a form of magical thinking, which is that these people are the backbone of a society, right? They make it go. They supply both the, the in a competent state, they supply a lot of the governmental uh, functions as well in terms of filling civil services, service positions, so on. But they basically form the backbone of the economy as well as the the social fabric that is keeping things together and... Uh, charities and all the other things that 
the web of fabric that used to be provided by civil society and now over the 20th century and into the 21st is now largely provided by government, as you say, increasing the total state. But there's a form of magical thing. Take everything these people have and we can kill them or, and as, or for those who don't kill, eliminate their political relevancy, yet we can somehow maintain the social benefits and economic benefits that these people provide. I mean, this only ends one way, which is in tears and disaster, but for whatever reason, the left can never see that. So the arc is inevitable of what they will do. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to kind of be the next thing I wanted to touch on. Obviously, there was a huge consequence for eliminating the kulaks because they knew how to farm. <laughs> and it turns out if you get rid of all the farmers who are good at farming, the only people you have left to produce food are people who don't know how to do it. Yeah. And and it seems like we're, you know, possibly looking at the same fate here. Middle America is what runs this place. These are the people who are for better, for worse, for the left, however they see it. Those that, like you said, make the thing go. And it's very clear we're losing a lot of competency out of that class right now. We're in a situation where we're entering this uh, almost post-apocalyptic scenario where people can't maintain basic structures of uh, society. They don't know how to repair you know, oil pipelines. They don't yes. know how to do plumbing. They don't know how to upkeep basic things. And as our economy of cheap new stuff falls apart as our just-in-time delivery system gets stretched to its limits and we end up running into the situation where you can't just bring in the new set of cheap cards cars from whatever country the ability to do things like maintain a vehicle becomes pretty essential but you've hollowed out the class of the same people who are keeping these kind of things running and so all of a sudden you're in a situation where you've tried to force the competent uh, class out of the scenario because they happen to be the same people who stand in the way of your expansion of power and you've undermined the ability of your civilization to function in the meantime. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's it's important to note as you, you talk about the competent people, traditionally the bourgeoisie is regarded as the middle and middle upper middle class, but really the people we're talking about nowadays, the people who are the white supremacists or what have you, are really what what Hillary Clinton called the deplorables. Mm -hmm. That is the combination, typically what, what historically we consider lower middle class people, uh, blue collar people, people without the you know, academic credentials to get the expensive job. The people at the higher end of the middle class social spectrum are almost all parasites now. 80% of them, whatever, is, as shown, of course, by you know, a classic example is Musk firing 80% of Twitter. Those kind of people don't provide any value and don't have any competency. The people who are provide the value, both in terms of economic value and social fabric, are really people who historically are kind of lower down on the class scale. Now, this is probably, a, you know, you'd have to sit down and think about it, a fruitful avenue for distinction between communism on the one hand and the current regime incarnation of leftism on the other, because the, the the class distinctions aren't exactly the same, and this probably flows again into into the race distinction. But it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. I mean, w the battle lines are drawn because it's obvious to anyone who's paying attention who's on which side of the political divide, who has the political power and is defining their political enemies, namely defining them as us, and who is going to be the recipient of their murderous attacks, which is us. So uh, I'm sure there's some academic distinctions to be made between class and race and the different ways you can slice this pie. But I think you should continually return to the fact of who is friend and who is enemy. 
Yeah, there is an obsession, of course, and I have been involved in this battle many of the time publicly online about the origin of wokeness or our current progressive regime, what it's actually tied to, what the really operative stuff is. And and those are interesting discussions. I think they have some value, uh, though, again, as I've said before, these should mainly be academic distinctions. They shouldn't really be something that the average person has to worry about. The only reason I think these origins really matter or worth debating is the number of people who seem obsessed with pushing this idea that wokeness is just Marxism, because then if we can just get rid of Marxism, we don't have to worry about the other things that we really, really love about the United States up until the 1990s. None of that stuff was an issue, and none of it would have naturally led us here. It all will just go away as soon as we get rid of Foucault from the classroom, right? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that's not going to work out. I mean, it's pretty obviously not working out. We can debate whether, despite the undoubted virtue of the founding fathers, that the this enlightenment seeds of the American experiment laid the necessary ground for where we are now. That said, uh, I mean, I think the answer is probably yes, but the, you know, it's not that I've kind of come relatively recently to this realization of existential conflict inside of America. I'm old enough that I can remember the late eighties, early nineties as a, as a political matter. And you know, I always used to be very, I was always averse to seeing these conflicts in existential terms. Um, in retrospect, that was a mistake. It was clear that this is where we were heading even then. Um, and here we are. I, I, it's just kind of sad to me that I have to put out tweets about you know, realizing that our enemies want us all dead. It's really not where I expected to be when I turned 50. But, you know, what you're going to do? Yeah, it is one of those things that is very unsettling to realize because it, obviously it puts you into very precarious position but it doesn't it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to sit around in there and mince the words especially when like you said it, what matters here at this point is kind of the operative politics you know it's it's great to again think about the academic uh you know uh origins of this stuff and and how that actually ends up playing out but at the end of the day time is short and you really need to figure out how to organize things and what you should expect and not so much worry about debates about you know 250 years ago and yeah. you know where this all would have uh, delivered us now now it's uh sorry i had something right here i wanted to make sure i hit uh we hit the maintenance there okay yeah so then the then in that case i wonder uh what would be then some of these consequences of uh of this rhetoric obviously we know that uh this is used to identify people as enemies create a wide swath of this we've already seen the willingness of the administration to use uh, forces like the FBI to surveil political enemies. We know they went after Trump. We know they knowingly, you know, influenced the election. We know that they are uh, kind of emphasizing uh, this rhetoric so that they can expand that power. And it seems like the, uh, you know, the left is looking for the next event, the next January 6th, the next uh, George Floyd, the next opportunity to have a, a reason to expand that definition, uh, accrue additional powers, uh, you know, kind of get the next Patriot Act and push this down on their political enemies. Yeah, I think that's, this is the inevitable arc of all left regimes, the uh, all radical regimes more generally, but uh, there's very few right radical regimes and not really enough to make a set of historical examples from, but it is the inevitable arc of left regimes, the inability to stop the internal demands for continued leftward progress and the permanent revolution. In order to do that, you must always be finding new targets and uh, delivering new goals 
or you have to announce that utopia has arrived because that's, of course, I always define leftism as a combination of demands for emancipation and egalitarianism in the service of achieving a utopia. And unless you're willing to declare that the utopia has arrived and everyone can look around and see utopia has not arrived, you must always be saying, well, if only we get this power and we destroy the power of these people, then we can make continued progress towards the utopia. So I think you're, you're exactly right that they're looking for another way to gin up the next round of power increase and violence directed at their political enemies, whether that's something like the electoral justice protest or the Floyd riots or, or what have you. But I think that it serves those things serve a couple different specific functions. I mean, one is simply whipping up their shock troops. And again, you know, weirdly, for something that involves you know, allegedly in its nomenclature race, all those shock troops, the Antifa types and so on, most of those are white. <laughs> so, you know, you can see just kind of by the very nature of the regime that they uh, that they that they give the lie to their own claims to begin with. But I think that whipping those people up, whipping the, the kind of low IQ, high hate uh, level shock troops of the left who kind of implement the the. Uh, you know, forward edge of left power is something whipping those people up is very important. And to do that, historically, propaganda has been used from the French Revolution on. And you, it varies, of course, depending on the context, but this is what they've chosen, white supremacy and so on, and white people being defined as white people, Asians, and black people who don't agree, who don't agree. Right. So, so, but it, at the same time, there's a, there's a serious, that's, that is serious, but there's a, a more considered and longer term goal, which is expropriation, again, as with, with, with the kulaks. I mean, the holders of the asset, actual assets of the United States are still by and large white people who do who work for a living uh, and both assets and in terms of the people who produce value. And so getting the, the as the regime and the regime functionaries produce less and less value, it's more and more important to get their hands on the value that exists in order to be able to pay off their, you know, as you say, the, in the juvenilian sense, their high-low uh, alliance. They need to pay off the low people who don't produce any value. And so seizing the assets is very important. And of course, the third reason for this iteration that will happen whenever they can find a convenient excuse is simply to provide a rationale for why they haven't because these people are still here, because we haven't gotten enough power. That's why the promised utopia of total freedom and total egalitarianism hasn't. But just around the corner, once we get this, it's going to be so awesome. So all those things flow together, but that's what makes it so dangerous. It, it, it also makes it the opportunity. I mean, my underlying political theory in this context is that the left's reach always exceeds its grasp. And if you, it can be cut off at the legs at the right moment when it overextends, uh, that's how one can win. But you have to wait for the right moment. Yeah, and the the wait for that moment can be rather difficult. Now uh, we've talked about uh, the uh, uh, kind of the hostility and the uh, implementation of the federal government and the uh, you know law enforcement. But you brought up the uh, expropriation there, which is really important too. You have to. Uh, generate that income. The patronage network is key, right? The, the left Absolutely. isn't just winning because they happen to have the best arguments or because they've even grasped the moral center of the nation, though the second part is at least true, unfortunately, to some extent, but because they're paying people out because at the end of the day, people know this is where the dollars are. 
And the process is exactly as you said, making sure that you squeeze every last ounce of uh, money out of the middle class, particularly the white working class, uh, so that you can go ahead and pay off uh, many of these groups. And so it's really essential to always have, of course, you need the moral reason to do that. And that is, of course, that all of this is ill-gotten gains. All of this was already expropriated from your ancestors. And so this can now be uh, safely uh, you know, taken. You can, you can level the prescriptions at these people because they totally deserve it and go ahead and take that money and pay off uh, you know, your, your patronage network. But you also end up eventually running to the you know, problem that this is a strategy that burns through itself, right? As we said, along with eliminating all the productive people, you will eventually squeeze all of the wealth that has not been concentrated in either the ruling elite or has been dissipated in, down into classes where it is meant very particularly to immediately vanish under the weight of cost of living and other, uh, you know, it will not be saved. It will not create generational wealth inside the patronage network. At that point, you have a really big problem, especially when you've kind of run your economy into the ground. And so I think we're going to eventually see that the, the miracle of progress and the willingness to redistribute kind of the income of the middle class in a way that's not going to create gener generational wealth for those that are counting on that uh, patronage network is eventually going to run you into a scenario where there's simply nothing left to feed people except the, the people at the top. That's all that's left. Yeah, and I, I think in this historically that's definitely the case, but <clears throat> it's exacerbated in this case by the fact that so much of American wealth is fake and based upon both. I mean, the GDP is kind of obviously fake in in many ways, seventy or eighty percent of it, maybe something in that range. But and I'm hardly an expert in things like the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency and the use of the petrodollar and so on. So I have no opinion about whether the United States dollar is going to collapse soon. Uh, or whether the BRICS countries will undercut the American ability to export its inflation and so on. But the fact is that you can easily imagine a scenario where at the same time, while the white working class becomes unproductive, either because as in essence, a form of strike or because they're, or they've been hounded to uh, you know, the hills or because so much of their uh, actual wealth has been expropriated, at the same time, there's some overarching economic collapse that doesn't allow the regime to continue levitating the economy and creating free money out of nothing. That would actually be catastrophic in an extremely short period of time. And again, that's what I mean by the regime's reach exceeding its grasp. They're like, well, you know, we can continue squeezing these people over the next several years. And then one day you wake up and nothing works at all anymore. So you that that's kind of, I mean, I'm not hoping for that. But, you know, that's the kind of historical opportunity that exists to make changes. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's the same problem they ran into when they decided it was a great idea to kind of purge all these people out of the military, right? Well, let's yes. get rid of them all. We'll use the vaccine mandate as a as a code word for purging, uh, you know, our most, uh, you know, all, all the Appalachian boys out of the uh, the military. And all of a sudden, there's no recruits. There's no, there's no, because yeah. it turns out these people made up the, the bulk of combat arms, made up the bulk of special forces, made up the bulk of the, of the most forward-facing part of the military. And it turns out you can't get enough uh, get enough drone pilots to really make up for these guys. <laughs> no, and, and the people, the the recruits they do have, are, they have to hugely lower both intellectual and physical standards. So, I mean, only a fool would have any confidence in the ability of the American military to fight any large scale. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, I, I, I would. I mean, fortunately and unfortunately, that is, I'm in favor of America having a adequate military force. 
I'm not in favor of the regime having any military force. And so until the regime is separated from America, then that the question of whether the it's good or bad to have a strong army remains open. Nonetheless, it's kind of pathetic. We can all agree. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate, you know, as, as someone who grew up as the, you know, the kid of a military officer, lived on military bases most of my childhood. It's a really very sad thing to see. These are people I have the highest respect for. This, these are organizations that I used to basically worship. And watching them fall into something like this is ugly. But at the same time, we do have to understand, like, the, the interests of the nation and the interests of the empire have separated. The interests yeah. of our ruling class and the global empire that they want to operate are not the interests of the American people. And so what's good, unfortunately, for the uh, empire is bad for the nation, which means yep. if the empire has a more functional and competent military, their plan is not to just infinitely strand that somewhere in a foreign country. Eventually, it's coming home for you. Uh, and yes. so, you know, that 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 is a very hard thing, very difficult thing, especially for people like myself who are talk radio conservatives most of their lives and, and, and you know, to, to kind of deal with. But it, it is the truth. And there's there's, again, just no value in denying that as, as difficult as it might be to, to kind of uh, face that. Uh, yes. But I also wanted to look at the uh, the effect of this rhetoric, this white supremacist rhetoric on uh, another big tool of our regime, which is a narco tyranny. So I think at this point, uh, especially due to Tucker Carlson's usage, almost all conservative you know, political pundits are now familiar with the term anarcho-tyranny. Uh, but this is something that has been at play for a long time. Sam Francis obviously introduced this in, I think, the 1990s. And so this is, uh, you know, this is a process that we've been undergoing for quite a while, but it's become so obvious and so painful that it's hard to ignore for pretty much anyone at this point. And there's really no case of this that's more obvious than we look at what's happened in New York with cases like Dan, uh, it's, I believe it's Daniel Penny, right? Uh, yeah. So, so Daniel Penny, you know, he and two men of color, as far as I can tell, subdue a violent homeless man who has kidnapped people, who's you know, uh, who's threatening to assault people on this train. Uh, the guy ends up dying, uh, you know, because probably not the healthiest individual. By the way, just as a, as a quick aside. Uh, all these people are, oh, it's a it's a chokehold. It's it's fatal. Guys, I have put people in a rear naked choke and have been put in a rear naked choke countless times. Uh, I'm still here. Everyone else is still <laughs> here. Uh, that's not how these these carotid artery chokes necessarily work. Uh, but if you're an unhealthy person, if you're someone who's done a lot of drugs or lived on the street your entire life, uh, then, yeah, you, you might have a more serious condition when when something like that happens. Point being. This guy is obviously involved in some form of defense, if not direct self-defense, defense of everyone around him. Anyone in a sane society would have pinned a medal on this guy's chest at some point. Obviously, like we don't have direct footage of what happened here, but from every we can everything we can tell, that's the case. And now, not only is this guy facing serious charges, uh, but he had to come out and tell everyone he's not a white supremacist. And that is probably the saddest thing we've ever seen because the rhetoric involved here is specifically designed to keep good people from protecting those around him, to destroy social fabric, to make sure that any at any time, if you think about stepping in and protecting yourself or others uh, from people who have been specifically left on the street by the regime to terrorize you, you will be labeled this white supremacy thing and it's all over for you. Yeah, and so the, the, it's very unfortunate, as you say, that the frame is unavoidable because they control the media, so they control the narrative, and so you you're forced into. And there's a lot of people out there who who are not regime toadies, 
but buy into this idea that because of all the propaganda, I mean, there's large numbers of people out there who buy into this propaganda because that's the way propaganda works. <laughs> the masses tend to uh, believe the propaganda or it's completely ineffective propaganda. So it, it's very unfortunate that someone like Penny has to come out and, and make statements when the correct response is to punch the person in the face who asked the question and have that person, you know, flogged roundly and thrown in the nearest canal to swim to the shore. I mean, it, that's the way things used to be handled in a society where people just wouldn't accept this kind of anarcho tyranny, which, which is really just factionalism, which is one of the oldest, oldest political tricks in the book. The rules apply relating to violence apply to you, but don't apply to me. I mean, that's, and this was true in Greek city-states. <laughs> the, the factions formed and the factions applied different rules to themselves. So it's, this is true. This must be some deep element of human nature. But this really, I mean, this highlights what we were saying earlier. There is no resolution here. That is, there's no universe in which, let's say Daniel Penny is acquitted, in which that's an acceptable result. The only acceptable result is for everyone involved in the process of his persecution, the media, the prosecutors, to suffer extreme punishments um, and, you know, exile, confiscation of all their assets, uh, you know, public humiliation. Uh, until we are a society which implements punishments for people like that, which, of course, means civil conflict, then they will just continue to do these things to us. I mean, back in the day, people would, if the people of New York had any sense, they would have had every moral right to storm the courthouse and free Daniel Penny and then give him a nice steak dinner to celebrate. And then if the relevant local law enforcement came along to keep them away by force, that's what they should, you know, there's no, there's no moral reason that they can't do that. But that's not what we are as a society. I don't want us to be there as a society, but we have to understand that's the way they treat us. Whereas anyone, when they kill people on our side, they're never charged. I mean, there was the recent case where uh, that, uh, remember during the Floyd riots, that security guard shot some Trump supporter in the face. He was yep. never charged. There was a case last week where in North Dakota, of all places, the DA it, it dialed back the charges, something minimal for a guy who deliberately killed a teenage Trump supporter. So you can't run a society where, one set of people is allowed to kill the other set of people and the other set of people isn't allowed to, to fight back. This inevitably ends in violence. I mean, I don't like violence. I'm not suggesting anyone go out and do violence. Uh, I am suggesting people defend themselves. Uh, but you, you just can't run a society this way. And it's it's just kind of sad because it used to feel like America was more like America. But, you know, as I said before, what you going to do? Yeah, I mean, there, there's just a horrific ability of this constant propaganda to kind of force this onto people. I don't know if you remember this a few years ago, but there was this uh, five-year-old in North Carolina called Cannon Hennett, and he was shot and killed while riding a bicycle. It was shot in the head because, uh, and, and uh, the defense of the black man who did it was, uh, he said something racist. Now... <laughs> Who knows if that's true, right? But the horrific idea that that would have been a justification, that that would even come to mind is something that could justify that kind of violence, that kind of horrific violence is already insane. But the worst part about it was the child's mother, the, the, the mother of the slain child, felt that her most important duty was to run out and tell everybody how not racist her son was, as if that was the relevant point. 
as if yeah. that was the the key factor in what of the events that just occurred there. It was her duty as the mother of a slain child to go out and vindicate him from the far worse sin, not not one of murder, but one of possible racism. That was the that was the most salient fact, uh, kind of in that scenario. And as long as you have that kind of hold and sway on the mind of the population, it's very difficult for people to kind of look at and understand what's happening. Yeah. Uh- that is the kind of weird thing, the hold on the minds of the population. I mean, the traditional answer to factionalism of this type that's or narco-tyranny is vigilante justice. And I mean, that's what people typically turn to in, in these kind of situations. And then eventually either the people who initiated this cycle of violence decide they need to dial it back or you move on to the next cycle of violence. But weirdly, people on the right seem to have entirely crippled their minds for the most part and and assumed this kind of weird, like, uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the podcast, but prison bitch, uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of, you know, like, I, I, I need to just sit here and take it kind of thing. And, and because my ancestors were racist or something like that, I don't get it. It's very strange to me. But it does mean that like so many things about our current situation, it's just unprecedented. Like what this is going to lead to as a political matter is just so unclear to me, even though I'm kind of a history guy and I, I like history, normally you can see kind of pretty clearly what's going to happen and you can see in broad strokes what's going to happen. But as the example of the five-year-old you just gave, I mean, before in history, no normal person would ever do behave like that. I mean, I mean, what the hell? Yeah, it's absolutely insane. Of course, we also just saw this uh, with the the pregnant nurse in New York, right? We get this initial, uh, this initial video that comes out and it's her, you know, trying to tell this uh, this group of young black men, no, you can't have this bike. It's my bike. I paid for it. Uh, they, when they continue to kind of crowd her and try to force her off of it, she starts crying. They accuse her of kind of making everything up and, you know, oh, you're a Karen, blah, 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 blah. But then everything comes out. And, and but to be clear, before this, like all these civil rights leaders and all these lawyers and people came out and said, oh, she deserves this. She's obviously trying to destroy the lives of these people. They're just innocent people trying to get the bike they paid for. And she, you know, she's trying to destroy their lives on social media. And of course, it comes out that actually she had the receipts for this bike. She paid for it. Like that, this was all exactly what she said it was. And the, you know, these people went out and immediately tried to destroy her life off of nothing. Now they've all deleted those tweets because she's threatening to sue them all. And good. <laughs> I, ho- I hope she destroys every one of them. I hope she's living in a palatial estate, you know, but at the same time, it's very difficult. Like a lot of people will say, oh, well, female nurse in, in uh, New York, she probably voted for this. Maybe she did. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Like democracy is stupid. You shouldn't let people live this way. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. I mean, it, it's weird because the, they're clearly looking, as you said earlier, for their next Floyd moment, Uh, you know, taking some scumbag and elevating him into some, some saint. And it didn't work out with this, this Neely, Neely guy and Daniel Perry for for probably obvious reasons, maybe some non-obvious reasons, but it's so weird that the regime and the people who rule us, that is to say, are so actively looking to create a race war. I, I I don't think the last I checked, race wars, any wars in general, but race wars don't benefit a society, but they want to do it for the reasons we outlined earlier. It benefits them and so on. But it, 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 I would never have thought growing up that 
2023 America, race war was on the bingo card. It just it just strikes me as so bizarre. Like I wake up sometimes. I always sleep like a baby because, you know, I have no conscience. But I, I, it, 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 I, I when I wake up, I'm like, you know, how the hell did we get to the point where race war was a legitimate possibility in America? It's, it's just I mean, I guess this is my theme for today. It's just so sad. It really is. Yeah, I mean, when you're constantly playing Rwanda radio in hopes of jamming up your political, uh, you know, point power, then they, what what other thing is going to come of it? It's, it's I know. It's it's just, uh, well, but unlike Rwanda radio, I mean, I, I, I certainly hope we don't see a real race war. But a real race war in America, you know, is not, is not going to be that long. It's going to end poorly for the side that's initiating it. So, um, you know, I hope we don't see that because we need to come back to some stability in America. But they certainly don't seem interested in that. Yeah, it's, it's absolute insanity. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting. Uh, my buddy, Jesse Kelly, he was saying, you know, when when Trump got indicted, OK, if they you know indict one of your guys like this, like you've got to you've got to indict one of theirs. Like it doesn't matter. Just like they're just making up charges. If this is how the game is played, how you've you know, you've got to play it back. And of course, everyone goes, "Ooh, how could you say that? It's like, well, where are we, guys? Like, what time is it? It's It's yeah. very again, it's. The theme of, the, like you said, the theme of this podcast is it's very sad. It's very <laughs> difficult, but it's it's also just like there's no value in pretending like this isn't what these people are doing. But because they'll keep doing it, and and this is right. when I when I say the reach of the left historically exceeds its grasp. You see this all the time, and, and for example, in the Spanish Civil War, what actually kicked off the Spanish Civil War wasn't the massive killing of clergy and burning of churches and all these other things that the left was engaging in, but rather where where they decided they were going to kill more or less the equivalent of the Speaker of the House and dump his body in the street. I mean, some people point people won't put up with these kind of things. And it's not typically because the masses rise up. It's because the some set of people who are, if not part of the elites, part of a potential counter elite, and that gets into the whole elite theory question, realize that it's not going to be to their benefit to allow this to continue any further. So in America, the people who are being focused on are the deplorables and then people who are support anybody who might potentially actually push back on left power, which really right now is only Trump and maybe maybe DeSantis. I mean, nobody else elected president or elected any political office will actually threaten left power. So until people start pushing back on those things, as Jesse Kelly suggested, nothing is going to happen except more of the same with an increasing level of ferocity from the left. Uh, so does this where people like Elon Musk come in? Is this where we start to see uh, kind of that counter elite who then looks at this and says, look, I can't put people on Mars if you're going to destroy society like this, right? Like the, 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 it, whether, you know, whether he feels he's got, you know, traditional conservative viewpoints or whatever is kind of immaterial. He can't, the, the society he needs to function for him to do higher order stuff stops existing if this continues. Yes. And so even if he doesn't care about one particular aspect of the culture war or something, though apparently he does particularly since it seems like what happened with his child and transgenderism, yes. but even if he, he isn't particularly invested in all of the culture war, it becomes essential for these people like I've got to put a stop to this. I've got to I've got to go beyond where I was just, you know, uh, taking pot shots at the regime and I've got to start thinking about how we can actually secure power because if I don't arrest this revolution then all of the plans that I have are completely out the window. Yes. I mean, Musk would not create a society that's identical to the society that Haywood create, would create. But fundamentally, 
it wouldn't be all that different because Musk, in order to achieve his ambitions, has to live in the real world. He is a reality-based individual. And the very nature of the left is to deny reality across the board in order in the service of this imagined utopia. And I've said for several years now that Musk will either have to destroy the regime or the regime will destroy him. Uh, and the, people make the argument, well, the regime is going to co-opt Musk and so on and so forth. It, it's impossible for the regime to co-opt Musk in any meaningful way because the strictures that unreality places upon Musk make it impossible for him to reach his goals. So unless he dials back his goals to be just like this rich dude who shoots off some rockets for profit and you know, people kind of treat you differently depending upon whether he's viewed as being politically compliant or not. I don't think, I doubt if that's the life that, that he wants. Not that Musk calls me up and tells me what the life he wants is. But it, it seems that that is more so than some of the other historical events where uh, where military men, for example, decide they've had enough of this leftist regime because it's coming for them. You can much more easily see a technologist, and Musk is the kind of the obvious candidate, uh, becoming the center around which reality-based people coalesce, whether they're people who think the same way as Haywood or not. I mean, they could be atheist technologists, but still uh, still keenly interested in advancing human flourishing, the flourishing of, man, of men and women in a remade America. We can worry about the details later. Getting rid of the current regime is the, is the number one goal. And I think Musk is probably... It's very hard to predict these things, obviously, but it, it, Musk, I, I, I have a lot of faith in Musk is the wrong wrong term, but I, I see the seeds of some potential major changes coalescing around Musk, but maybe it's just the, you know, three beers I had the other night, who knows? <laughs> well, and if not Musk, then someone else who might be in that position, uh, though he does seem the the only, the figure who is in the best position at the moment, he, he has... Uh, both the you know the social clout he has the technological ability and he has uh, the money power to kind of uh, he doesn't create have the, a fulcrum he doesn't really have the charisma or the rhetorical ability so yeah. you know I, I, you could imagine someone coming out of out of nowhere someone i mean obviously any number of scenarios is possible but say somebody comes up with some incredible new invention that makes him super rich like fusion Tabletop fusion. And that guy just decides to take the world by storm and he has other characteristics that, that fit with that. I mean, who's to say? But he, I, the thing I try to tell my children all the time is that the, despite the kind of hustle and bustle of so-called news and the, the hype machine, really we haven't seen anything notable happen in the past 10 or 15 years or longer, maybe a couple decades. But someday history will return and uh, because that's the way it goes. And so real history is coming for us. Uh, well, how soon that is, I don't know. But w despite the fact that we're told all the time that all these things are so important, the latest outrage is something we now need to talk about. None of this is real history. I mean, not even the Russo-Ukraine war is real history, at least not yet. I mean, these things are all kind of ticky-tack. The, the real history is coming. And um, frankly, I'm kind of bored. So despite the fact that it may kill me, I'd like, I'd like the real history to come back, please. Yeah, no, uh, Fukuyama will will eventually be proven uh, proven wrong. But uh, yeah, I think you're I think you're right that uh, the all for all the things we're told that are the end of the world or the most important pressing thing right now, there are 
far more consequential things that will reemerge that have to reemerge. Liberalism can only uh, pave over those things for so long. And uh, we're, we're seeing all of them kind of break the shoots, break up through the, the cracked pavement at the moment. So yes, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, exciting times ahead. Um, <laughs> so that said, uh, we've got uh, some questions of the people stacking up here, Charles, but before we go look at what they have to say, where can people find your excellent work? I write uh, at theworthyhouse.com, where I write a variety of pieces, including a lot of book reviews, which are really my theories masquerading as book reviews for my pet political philosophy, my pet political applied philosophy called foundationalism. I also show up on Twitter occasionally, despite the fact that we discussed my somewhat viral tweet. I, I'm not actually a hot takes guy on Twitter, uh, but uh, but I do show up on Twitter occasionally. But if you want to read my stuff, there are several hundred articles at theworthyhouse.com. We got to set you up with some. Oh, yes, it's perfect. Yes. And uh, he also has the, the videos on YouTube where he narrates them, which is yes. uh, well worth your time. I ended up listening to your one on uh, uh, discourses on Livy here recently. So that, that was good. Uh, but yeah, we'll have to set you up with some some sign tapping memes. Yeah, you know, we'll get we'll break you into the, the Twitter. <laughs> there. All right. So let's take a look at our questions here, guys. Our first one is from Johan Richardson for $5. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, is the left even a useful identifier? Is it targeted for expropriation, i.e. stealing, essentially a raider predatory parasite strategy? Well, yes, in a sense that you know, stealing is a constant throughout human history. But uh, I think that the, the nature of the left's political project requires a more formalized approach to theft than simply you know, smash and grab, take the purse out of the car kind of theft for the reasons we identify, which in short, uh, kind of boiling it down, are whipping up your myrmidons, your foot soldiers, acquiring value for your patronage network, as, as Aron correctly identified the kind of goal. I mean, not just taking the money, but redistributing it in order to gain political power and uh, explaining why uh, you haven't stolen enough yet. You haven't eliminated enough people yet. So utopia hasn't arrived yet. So while, yeah, I mean, sure, stealing is a human constant. I think it's more formalized and ideologized by the left than uh, than simple smash and grabs. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, look, guys, I want you to understand something here. What the left is doing is not new. It's not novel. This is not something that has been simply made up, as Charles alluded to earlier. These are all strategies that are ancient. These factionalism, you know, this, this expropriation, this is all something that we've seen before and we'll see again. Uh, these are functions of ruling parties and states. The reason it looks as dire as it does to you right now is that power is fractured in the United States. And there's a faction that wants to control the, uh, you know, the, the state and its totality. They need it that for its operation. And so they're going after all of their enemies to kind of liquidate anyone who'd stand against them. But again, we've seen this many times. The state is always, in a way, parasitic. But again, as Bertrand de Juvenal kind of says, you know, all kings begin as parasites, but at some point they gain a care. They understand that it's worth investing in the people that they are parasites on instead of just burning it all down. And that's when kind of the principle of the Rex arises, when they understand that it, it is it is better to care for those from whom they benefit rather than to simply take what they can now and burn it all down. The reason that you're seeing what we're seeing now is there is no value in doing anything but burning it all down. We've designed our system for exactly that purpose. 
And so it's, you know, the things we're seeing, again, are not new. They're not inventions of the left. They didn't just come up with them. Progressives didn't cook them up in a strategic meeting 10 years ago. This is something that we would expect and see as kind of the the evolution of of regimes move forward when leftists do this kind of thing, as uh, Charles pointed out, uh, you know, when leftists are in charge, when they're in this revolutionary paradigm, this is what we expect to see. Uh, We got Creeper Weirdo here. For $2, they rage at God for daring to give them life. Yes, as always, leftism is a revolt against uh, God and existence. And then based uh, 0909 here for $10. Again, thank you very much. Uh, Charles and Oren, do you think we will see wide-scale uh, persecution of the right before the collapse uh, based 0909? Yeah, you're in it. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, you're you're living through it. There's this weird thing conservatives do where like they don't think that this is happening until the train shows up to move them to the camps. They don't realize that like the modern state brings the camps to you. So you are already in a scenario where you can't speak your mind. You're already in a scenario where the government is slowly extracting all of your wealth and the ability for you to have families and to have children and to kind of you know live a meaningful life and they're doing it slowly by bit by bit so that nobody you know uh, gets crazy about it so this is already happening like right wingers can't say basic things try holding up position in any major company while having say a traditional view on marriage or a basic biological biologically biologically correct understanding of gender you can't do that that that's because you're already in the middle of wide scale persecution of the right I totally agree with that, but I think we're also already in the collapse. That is, I don't, I'm not a, I'm a accelerationist catastrophist, but I'm not necessarily predicting we're all, you know, I, I, in fact, I'm not predicting we all end up in Mad Max. You hinted at this with the cracks in the pavement comment earlier, but the, the, it, there's a very strong argument made that America is already in a slow motion collapse. And the, the things that we tolerate now is kind of, oh, well, that's just normal. 15 years ago, people have been like, what the hell? This is a catastrophe. You know, the, whether that's you know, infrastructure collapse of various kinds, the whole Wuhan plague kind of thing. There are many things you can point to as, as elements of collapse. It, I, I maintain that fracture of a society is a step function. That is, one day you, you're not fractured and the next day you are. But the collapse in terms of the decay can go on in kind of a linear fashion for some time before it has the, the impact of fracture. Yeah, I think that's really important for people to understand. Like these, try going back to uh, your random NRA member in 2005 and explaining to them COVID (laughs) and what happened there. Obviously, that can't happen in the country. We have a Second Amendment, right? There's just no way the government would ever be able to secure this. We all know that's how the Constitution works, blah, blah, blah. Today, that happened. Everyone knows it's just kind of the reality moving forward. Everyone kind of feels like the government will just feel ready to do that again the next time they kind of work it up. And so it's one of those things where, uh, like you said, that this stuff does occur, um, you know, slowly. The decline does happen uh, slowly. Eventually, at some point, there might be an official crack up of the United States or its political structure. Uh, but it's kind of amazing what people will live through and kind of not realize it because it's just been restated in a, in a new way and uh, described as the norm. Yep. Uh, Pronomium Chomsky here for $5. Thank you very much, sir. Do you think the reason we have no, we have not officially entered a session is because the regime doesn't want opposition to its funding in the Ukraine war? What do you think, Charles? Are they cooking the books just to- Well, I think it's broader than that. I mean, I think the, 
everything is fake, right? And sure. so you, you, when you start from the premise that everything is fake, that doesn't tell you specifically how it's fake because they spend an awful lot of time uh, concealing how things are fake. And the United States, because of historical accidents, has the ability to do things like print infinite money without having the consequences that would normally follow on that. So I don't think it's the there's any necessar- necessary link between declaring a recession or not declaring a recession and the money the regime spends on on you know wastes on things like the war in Ukraine. But the the it's definitely true more broadly speaking that everything the government tells us about the economy should be presumed to be a lie. And concealing something that they may not even understand themselves, but papering over whatever cracks are appearing probably frequently behind the scenes. And eventually those things are going to show. But to be fair, I would have predicted they would have showed up before here. Like, for example, immediately after the the Wuhan plague with all the money printing and paying people to do nothing doesn't seem to have had any effect in people's ability to live. And that goes back to the earlier question, which was people are only going to not take it anymore when they feel like their lives are no longer are, are they need to improve their situation. And while it's true that there's an enormous amount of death of despair and opioid addicts and people who are never seen, who 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 are in terrible shape, lo- most of America gets their fake jobs or their fake money, watches their very real Netflix, eats too much food, you know, injects themselves with Ozempic to uh, to to get get rid of the results of that food, I, 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 lives a kind of soft, cosseted, risk free existence until that changes people aren't going to going to strike back against the regime's oppression and the same thing is true for the economy until people feel economic ill effects on themselves the government lies don't really affect them and you also have to remember guys that at some point like no matter how stupid the lie is if you continue to live by it long enough eventually you embody it as truth and so like our regime understands like in theory, like somewhere someone can do math and they understand that like selling pro sub subprime mortgage mortgages to people based on their race again is a mistake. Like they understand that that collapsed the economy last time. And if you do it again, you'll get the same restored. Like in theory, they get that. But in reality, they've bought into this. And the fact that like the political utility of it becomes too much and the idea that they'll be able to get away with this time probably works. And actually, do we actually believe at the end of the day that really these people should have these things and that we can, you know, kind of sustain this hit infinitely? Like oh, at some point, they really do buy into this and they don't even know how to sort their own lies from reality. And so you'll see them embrace solutions that are increasingly, increasingly ridiculous because they don't even know how to sort their own BS anymore. And this is one of the reasons we're going to win because they're stupid. <laughs> and and if you think about it, I mean, I was saying to someone the other day that I have I, I racked my brain and there's not a single person in kind of public life today in, within the regime, whether it's a politician or a judge or whatever, that I don't have total contempt for. And some of these people are vast majority just plain stupid. Some are bright, but blinded by ideology. But the end point is the same. They do stupid things. And eventually that means we're going to win. Let us hope. All right. Creeper Weirdo here for $2. We live in a clockwork orange. Yes. Watch out for the droogs, everyone. Make sure you watch out for the droogs. All right. So I think we got through everybody there. Let me just double check before we go. 
All right, guys. So it looks like that's all of the questions of the people. Thank you, everybody, for showing up. Lots of great questions, lots of great discussion. Want to again thank Charles Haywood for coming by. Make sure that you're checking out all of his great work over at the Worthy House. Of course, if it's your first time here, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the channel. And if you have not done so yet, make sure that you get these broadcasts as podcasts by subscribing to the Orrin McIntyre show, which you can find on all your favorite podcast platforms. And if you do that, guys, just take the extra minute to do that rating review. I know it seems like something really small, but just that little minute really helps with all the algorithm magic. Thanks for coming by, guys. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.